Well, good morning, everyone. What an amazing morning so far. I don't know how you guys expect me to follow up what we just witnessed today, but I will do my very best because, ironically, the focus of the message today is about living by faith rather than simply having faith. And what a fantastic example from both Jungin and now Lois of faith in action, that having the courage to get up in front of a bunch of people who you probably don't know everyone here, and yet to share something so deeply personal that the Lord has done in your life. So, good work, thank you. (laughs) So I wanted to start off this morning uh, with a story as any good Baptist preacher does. Um, So a few years ago, I went to the Institute for Creation Research in Dallas. Uh, It opened up a few years ago. Basically what it is, is it is a interactive museum that teaches the creation of the world from a biblical perspective. It's kind of trying to push back against the idea that the universe just kind of came into being on its own. It's trying to present the perspective that you can see the hand of God throughout the natural world, and here are all the evidences for it. And so I had the privilege of going with my grandparents on one of the first days that it was opened to the public, and it was a really cool experience, and of course I was very excited. And when I first went, so there are these paintings in the entrance to the uh, Creation Museum that is called the Creation Series. Basically, it is a series of six paintings right next to one another, and each of them is met, meant to represent a different day of creation as is described in the book of Genesis. They're very beautiful paintings, and so I was trying to take pictures of them. Well, there was this huge crowd of people, and so I'm kind of trying to work my way through the crowd to get pictures of these paintings, and there is this lady who is standing right in front of the paintings that I'm trying to take a picture of, and there's all these people around her, and I'm getting kind of annoyed because I'm trying to like work my way through the crowd to get these pictures, and here's this lady just standing in the way, not seeming to do anything, just standing there talking with people. So I'm getting frustrated. And then my grandfather taps me on the shoulder and points at her and says, Thomas, that's the artist who painted those paintings. (laughs) And so, of course, I was incredibly embarrassed uh, for feeling annoyed at this lady. And so I went up to her. Her name is Rachel Wimpy, is the artist. And I got to have a conversation with her about what inspired her to make those paintings, how long it took her, the techniques she used. You may see where I'm going with this because in my pursuit of the artistry, I missed the artist. And how often, church, in our lives, do we get so caught up in this beautiful world that God has made for us, but we become so attached to it, we become so enamored with it, that we miss the creator himself. Because what's more valuable, a picture of a painting or a conversation with the artist who painted it? And by the same, by the same token, what's more valuable, the creation itself or spending time with the creator who made all of it? And that's what I want to talk 
with us to you all about this morning is about refocusing our perspective on the creator because this world is so great. It is good. There are so many good things that God has given us, but it's tricky because these good things that in and of themselves aren't bad can become bad if they distract us from our perspective on God. If we start to love those things more than we love God. Our passage today is going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 25. I'm going to go ahead and read through the whole passage, and then we will kind of break it down verse by verse. So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore... God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So there are a lot of takeaways that we can get from this passage. But in these first couple of verses, the first big takeaway that I have written down here is that we see a contrast of the righteous live by faith while the unrighteous live according to their own wisdom. And that is a theme that you see throughout the passage as well as a theme throughout all of scripture. I want to highlight kind of the verb there of Paul says that the righteous will live by faith. It's not just that the righteous will have faith. It, it takes it a step farther. They will live by faith. There's an implication of action there. You know, you can have something. It's like that saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like, you gotta, there's an action implied in living. But what does that mean? How do we live by faith? How is that different from simply having faith? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the author says about faith that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. So faith is 
when looking at Scripture. It's when you read about how God says that he does not lie. Faith is trusting that that is true. When God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us, faith is trusting in that promise. When Jesus promised his disciples that he will return one day to bring justice and peace and wipe every tear from our eyes, faith is placing our hope in that promise. You know, some people might accuse people who live by faith of simply having wishful thinking or blind optimism or being reckless or this sort of misplaced idealism. But it is none of those things because it is based in the truth of scripture and it is based in an eternal creator who does not change, who from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, has remained the same and will continue to remain throughout the ages into eternity. And Jesus also reemphasized this same point in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. He told his disciples, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's a hard thing to live by faith because we have to live by things that we cannot see. I think the reason why we have such a hard time with that is because, frankly, for most of us, we live for the next paycheck. We live for the next job opportunity. We live for the next vacation. We live for the next relationship, the next big trend, because those things are tangible. Those things we can see. We can make our pros and our cons list and pair them up to each other and have a very logical way of approaching our lives. Whereas faith-based living, there's a lot more that we don't see, a lot more happening behind the scenes that we can't really comprehend. It's just like Jamila was talking about in her testimony of getting on that plane, not entirely sure of where she was going. You know, by all conventional wisdom, people would say that's foolish, but she trusted in the Lord that he would provide. And that's another reason why living by faith is so tough is because oftentimes, as much as I hate to say it, sometimes the people around us will be confused or dismissive if we try to live by faith. Why don't you have that five-year plan of what your life's going to be? What do you mean you're going to go off to a foreign country that you don't know anything about? It's not your culture, it's not your language, and you're going to leave behind all of your life here to go off into some far off place that you don't understand? Why would you go into a profession where you know you're gonna make a lot less money than the people around you who have the same degree level? That doesn't make any sense. And I give these as, ex as examples because faith defies conventional logic. And its goal is something different other than simply monetary success or financial gain or social status, it's looking to build up the kingdom of God. Whereas all those other things, those are for building up our own kingdom and our own ego, if we're being honest. 
You know, uh, last week Alex talked about what is it that makes us distinct from the rest of the world and how we live. And I think this idea of living by faith is so key to that. Because the world, I mean, turn on the news, look on social media. This world is constantly in a state of panic and anxiety, fear, and paranoia over every issue imaginable. When the world doesn't get what it wants, it panics. When the stock market crashes, people panic. When a person's preferred political candidate doesn't win, we panic. When we see war in other countries, we panic. We as believers should stand apart from this kind of mentality because we have a hope that extends beyond this life. The stock market is not going to extend beyond this life. No president is going to extend beyond this life. And no war, no international conflict is going to extend beyond this life. But God does. And faith in him is rooted in something far greater than any of those other things. And it should allow us to experience joy in the midst of pain and suffering. That doesn't mean we go around with a fake smile on our faces, pretending like everything is good when things are difficult. Rather, joy is the idea that you have this deep-seated knowledge that, you know, things are tough, but it's not the end of the world. God is sovereign over all of this, and I can place my hope in that. It's so easy to get caught up in panic and paranoia and because of that, we have to remain rooted in the word of God. You know, when Jesus called uh, Peter and Andrew when they were out fishing in their boat, he didn't tell them, okay, guys, let me give you some time. Get all your ducks in a row. Make sure you're financially stable. Make sure your dad's okay with it. Make sure everybody is all good. And then you can follow me. He just said, come, follow me and they immediately left their nets and they followed him. I don't think they knew everything that was going to happen when they said, yes, I will follow you, Jesus. I don't think they had a clear five-year plan of what this is gonna look like in the long run, but they recognized there's something different about this man. I have to follow him. The same thing with Matthew at his tax table. Jesus said, come follow me, and immediately he left his tax table to follow him. That's his business, that's his livelihood, and he leaves it behind in a moment to follow after Christ. And this is contrasted when you read about other stories in the Gospels of the man who said, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first let me say goodbye to my family. I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me bury my father first. Jesus says that a man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Those guys were basically telling Jesus, let me get my life in order, then I'll follow you. Let me get my act together, let me get my ducks in the row, make sure it's financially stable, is this viable, <laughs> is the outlook good for this idea, then once all of that's in place, Give me three to five business days and I'll get back to you on that. And unfortunately, I, I worry that as Christians, we can get sucked into that kind of an idea that when we see a, a ministry opportunity, when we see a, 
somewhere where the Lord is calling us, we, we look at all the logistics of it and we get scared. We look at all of the conventionally wise things about that opportunity and then we start to back out of it, then we start to doubt. It's similar to the Israelites when they were wandering through the wilderness and they finally make it to the promised land and they send out spies into the promised land to scout out the land and for the vast majority of the spies, they come back and they say, you know what, this is too tough. We can't do this. Those guys are big, they're strong, they've got spears and swords, they look real mean and scary. I, I don't think this is a good idea. Even though this is the land that God had promised them all the way back in the book of Genesis that I will give you this land, it wasn't contingent upon how militarily strong Israel was. God says, I am going to give this land to you. You just need to go into it and I will make it happen. And yet for the vast majority of those spies, they said, no, too risky. Can't risk it. <laughs> and it was only Joshua and Caleb who said, you know, it looks tough, but guess what? The Lord is on our side. We can do this. That is what it looks like to live by faith. That's the difference is having faith I mean, having faith, of course, is good. <laughs> we should have faith. But does that faith lead into righteous action? Does that faith cause us to live in such a way that looks different from the rest of the world? Or are we just like the sports fan who sits in the stadium and cheers on the team, but they'll never get on the field and actually play the game? And God has called us to be players not bench warmers. That's one of the few times you'll hear me use a sports analogy, so I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, I get so passionate about this because I myself have fallen victim to this same kind of attitude that I'm talking about, of just living to the next paycheck, the next job, the next opportunity. But those things are so fragile, they're so easily taken away from us, and when you place all your faith in something that is temporary, when that thing inevitably fails, then where's your hope? Then where is your security? Living by faith is difficult because it requires us to abandon worldly ideas of wisdom and logic. To the rest of the world, it looks foolish, it looks reckless, it looks too risky, but nothing is too risky if it is done through prayer with God at the center of our hearts. Then that's a risk worth taking. Let me ask us, church, in what areas are we holding out on Jesus? In what areas of our lives have we said, I will obey you, I will follow you, I will trust you when I get this part of my life in order? When I'm financially secure, I'll follow you. When I'm married, I'll follow you. When I get this job, I'll follow you. When I get this degree, then I will devote more time to you. The call to follow Jesus is always a call to immediate change and to immediate action. But just like we heard from the testimonies earlier, 
God has such a plan in store for us that we cannot even comprehend. I don't imagine that for either Jungin or Lois that they could have imagined that they would be where they are right now, but God had a plan in mind for them. And to be honest, even for myself, I couldn't even imagine that I would be here where I am right now, but God had a plan and ironically, it was a good thing that my plans failed so that God's plan could be the one that was made known in my life. So that was the first point. <laughs> Moving on to the next big takeaway that I think we can get from this passage is in verses 18 through 23 of Romans chapter 1. And it's that we can also see from this passage that God's presence in our lives is evident. Objectively speaking, God is present in our lives. But our sin and our doubts and our fears distort that perception. They distort our focus. Again, God's presence in our lives is evident, but sin distorts our focus. And I believe that this applies on both a a broad level for all of humanity as well as on a individual level. You know, on a broad level, we can see God's handiwork in both human history as well as in the natural world. A, a, an animal fact that always blows my mind is that, did you know that for Alaskan salmon, the reason they're able to find their way to the spawning grounds that they go to year after year, generation after generation, is because they have a tiny bit of iron in their brains that allows them to instinctively detect the magnetic poles of the earth and know where magnetic north is. And so that is how generation after generation of fish is able to return to the exact same spot that previous generations did to mate and to spawn and so on. Isn't that incredible? How could that have happened on its own? We, we can't even do that. If I tried to put a piece of iron in my brain, I would die. <laughs> like, we can't. We don't know how to do something like that. And yet, God designed this animal to do that. To me, that's just incredible. And beyond the natural world, throughout human history, we have seen God safeguard humanity and allow us to get to the point where we are today. If you research the Cold War, you will find that on more than one occasion, the United States and the Soviet Union almost nuked each other because our radar technology was so bad that they would detect a flock of birds flying over a missile silo and think it was a bunch of missiles headed towards them. And on more than one occasion, we almost nuked one another because of a flock of birds. And, like, that would have been it. Like, could you have imagined, like, World War III happens because a flock of birds flew on a radar screen? But, and throughout history, frankly, it's a miracle we have not destroyed ourselves with all of the technologies we have created and how selfish, frankly, we are as humans. But God has safeguarded humanity for millennia after millennia after millennia to now we are more populous on earth than we have been at any other point in human history. But not everybody looks at the world and sees it that way. Bertrand Russell is a, or was a famous atheist logician and mathematician 
and someone very well respected in the scientific community. And someone asked him, they asked him, they said, if you died and it turned out God was real and you were standing face to face with him, what would you say to him? And Bertrand Russell's response was, he said that he would tell God, Sir, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself? And to me, that's just so mind-blowing of like, okay, Bertrand, what more could you possibly want to point to you that God is in fact real? And I have a hard time showing my loving side and being sympathetic to that mentality but it, it points out the truth that is shown in this passage. It says that by their godlessness and by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The truth is evident, but our logic, our wisdom, our way of thinking, the way we were raised, these things get in the way and they distort our view of who God is. Now all of a sudden, the signs that God has given to us already are not enough, and they will never be enough if we're being honest. Now all of a sudden, all the blessings in our life seem meaningless because I don't have that one thing that I really want. Everything else becomes frivolous in our eyes. And for those of you, you know, I'm not God. I can't see into people's hearts, but for those of you who who don't believe in God, or may not even believe in the existence of God, I want to challenge you to think back on your own life. Was there ever a time where you were teetering on the edge of complete financial ruin and poverty, and then miraculously you were saved from it by some stroke of luck? Was there ever a time where your health was in severe decline, and then all of a sudden miraculously you were better again with no real good explanation as to why? Was your life headed down one direction and then all of a sudden a complete U-turn in the opposite direction with no real explanation? Those are all signs of the hand of God working in your life. And for us as believers, it's tragic that when we don't have the one thing that we crave, we can become very arrogant and very petulant. Um, not to disparage anyone who has toddlers, uh, but if you, if you have a toddler, then you know that no matter how much you feed your child, no matter how much of a, of a warm roof you put over their head, no matter how much security you give them, if they don't have that one toy at the store, they're gonna freak out. <laughs> if they don't have that one extra piece of candy, they start to throw a fit. And you're like, I brought you into this world. You better be careful. <laughs> and unfortunately, we can kind of act the same way with God. Not kind of, we do. When we don't have that one thing that we really want, we start to forget all the ways in which God has blessed us up until that point. You know, I, I knew a gal in uh, college. I don't think she was a believer, but she uh, went on a date that ended up going very poorly and didn't work out. 
And when she came back from it, she made a remark. She said, well, if there is a God, clearly he must hate me. And for me, I'm like, okay, because one date went bad. That means God hates you. With, you're going to this university, you have so much in your life, but because one date went bad, God hates you. And I can sit here in judgment against her, but I've definitely had that same mentality in my own life. God, you've blessed me with all of this. You've given me all these things, all this money, these family, these friends, this church, but why won't you give me a girlfriend? God, you've given me all of this, but couldn't just I have a car that's a little newer, that doesn't have AC that breaks? And at the end of the day, things like that are so petty, they are so futile, ultimately. They have no eternal significance. And I want to challenge us, church, is there something in your life like that, where you are so transfixed on obtaining that relationship, that job promotion, that number in your bank account, that car, that you're losing sight of all the other ways in which God has blessed you already. Because it's easy to get caught up in the temporal things, but God wants us to focus on what's eternal, what will last beyond this life. Let's not be so arrogant just to think that because we believe in God and accept him that we can't fall victim to that same kind of mentality. Because whenever we are living in sin, we make ourselves vulnerable to our own doubts, our own fears, our own insecurities. It gives an opportunity for the enemy to get in and just start really messing with our perception of reality. We have to look at our lives through the lens of scripture, not through the lens of our culture, through the lens of our social media, and at times not even through the lens of the way we were raised. We have to look at it through the lens of the Bible. Which brings me to my uh, final point, which is kind of long, so maybe it's not really my final point, but we also see in this passage that worship of the creator leads to righteous living while worship of creation leads to unrighteous living. Creation is a beautiful, wonderful, great thing, but it doesn't exist to glorify itself. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It it blows my mind that in the 21st century, we, we're still seeing the same kind of mentalities that were in the 1800s. There was this big philosophical movement back then called transcendentalism, which basically says that, you know, society, cities, things like that are all bad. They're all corrupt. So if we all just left the cities and went out into nature, then life would be good. <laughs> we could all go fishing and <laughs> go climb a tree, and the world would be a better place. And even today, you see that kind of attitude of you will occasionally hear people say, well, I don't need to go to church. The fishing pond is my church. 
The forest is my church. Being out in nature, that's my church. I hate to break it to you, but you cannot have fellowship with a fish or a deer or birds. You're not a Disney princess. I'm sorry, but truth hurts sometimes. Nature exists to point our attention towards God. It in and of itself is not worthy of worship because even nature itself has been tainted by the fall. You look at things like diseases and predatory animals and natural disasters. Those things were not present before the fall. Those things only came into existence because of man's corrupt, fallen human nature. So even the world itself, scripture says, groans like as if with labor pains under the weight of sin. The world as God made it is good, but it has been broken. It has been tainted. And so it is not deserving of our worship. And beyond that, no thing created by human beings is worthy of our worship. I think one of the reasons we see our country is so divided right now is because people's worship is, is focused on created things. It's not focused on God, it's focused on this individual, this political party, this government, this ide- ideology. It, it's not about the creator, it's about all these things that we've come up with, all these things we've invented to try to make the world a better place. And all of them fall short of that, ultimately. Jesus is the only one who is going to save this world and bring order and justice and wipe every tear from our eyes. No politician can do that. No country can do that. No political party can do that. Only God can truly bring salvation. Not, not to get too political, but there was a speech given recently called The Battle for the Soul of the Nation. And I'm sorry, but only God can save the soul of this nation. I don't care what president you are. You cannot save the soul of this country. Only God can do that. This is why we cannot put our faith in the things of this world, because they are tainted by sin, and they will let us down. And if I may get a little more closer to home here, I think this is why so many people end up leaving the church as well. Because they put their faith in the institution. They put their faith in the ministry rather than God. They put their faith in a particular individual rather than God. And it's a very insidious and subtle thing. But... We can't put our faith in IBCA. We can't put our faith in John or Charlie or Sufnat or Alex or me or Gabe or anyone here. Our, our faith has to be in God because all of this is created by human hands. And all of it should be for the purpose of directing our attention toward the creator, not towards the building itself, not towards even the people, but towards God. Our fellowship is good when it glorifies the creator. 
Fellowship is not just any time a bunch of Christians are together in the same room. It is when the community is worshiping together and is doing so in a way that gives glory to God. And I wonder sometimes if perhaps the reason God takes some of these things away from us, perhaps some of the reason why we experience hardship with our material things is because God doesn't want us to lose sight of what our faith should be in. He doesn't want us to get caught up in things that ultimately will fail us. You, you see this with uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, that when they went out to fight the Philistines at one point, they said, let us bring the ark and it will save us. They don't say God will save us in this battle. They say the ark of the covenant itself but the Ark of the Covenant was only had power because the Spirit of God dwelt in it. Without the Spirit of God, it's just a box. And it only had power because of God. And likewise, the church only has power when the Spirit of God is dwelling among us. If God is not present in our lives, then we're just another building. And you see this theme throughout scripture. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his own son, it was testing to see if Abraham loved God for who he was or loved him for what he had given him. That he loved his son more than God. It was testing him on that. Same thing with Job. Satan came before God and said, if, if you let me take away all of Job's stuff, all of his material wealth, his children, even his health, surely he will turn and curse you. And Job, even through all of the hardship that he experienced, refused to curse the name of God because his faith was not based in what he possessed. His faith was based in God. And the same thing with the temptation of Jesus when Satan went to him and said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you just bow down to me and worship me. It was a temptation to see, would Jesus compromise his faith in order to gain material wealth? And Jesus, of course, did not give in to that temptation. But I say this so to warn us that we don't fall into that temptation of compromising our faith, compromising our morals in order to be worldly successful in order to get the material thing that we want. It's a very easy, easy thing to fall into. And, you know, I've been challenged lately because a lot of us are working towards retiring and towards the day when we will finally be able to stop working and I'll get to go golf and go on a boat and I don't know what else retired people do. But for whatever reason, that sounds really good to a lot of people. It doesn't to me, but um, everybody's looking forward to the day of retirement. And uh, he hates being shouted out, but I'm going to do so anyway. My grandfather is 80 years old. He just turned 80 years old this day. And every Sunday, he gets up and he preaches at a different church that doesn't have a pastor. 
And to me, that is so inspirational because he could so easily say, I'm going to enjoy my retirement. I'm 80 years old. I'm going to live the rest of my life how I want to live it, doing what I want to do. I have all this free time. And he chooses every Sunday to bring the word of God before a different congregation. To me, that is a clear sign of a man whose mind is not focused on his temporal legacy, but on what eternal difference he can make for the kingdom of God. And that's the kind of mentality that I would like to emulate, and I think that we as believers should all emulate. Because what a shame it would be if we spent our whole lives trying to safeguard what was never truly ours to begin with. Just trying to build up walls, build up fortifications, put in the right investments, you know, invest in the right companies, and life will be good. And that stuff, it doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. You know, we make fun of the Egyptian pharaohs who buried themselves in gold coffins surrounded by servants and even their pets and all of these different things to try to take it with them into the afterlife. And we say, how foolish. But how much of our culture, how much of our society has that exact same mentality of get as much stuff as you can before you die. And God is asking how many souls will you get before you die? Will you be a fisher of men? Will you be someone who invests in other people? There's a reason why Jesus told that story of the servants with the money that was allotted to each of them. And the servants who took that money, invested it, and grew it were called righteous and faithful. And the servant who just buried the money in the sand and then came back and said, I kept safe what you gave me, that servant is called wicked and evil. And that is meant to be a parable for our lives. God has given us our individual lives and our giftings for a reason. And we can choose to either invest it into building the kingdom of God and helping others, or we can choose to hoard it to ourselves, use it for our own gain, and not ever take any risks with it. And that is not what God has called us to do. Bringing us to the end here, I want to give us two challenges. Firstly, to, to those of us who have already received Christ and asked him to be our savior, I would challenge us to say that don't think just because we have received him that we can't fall into the same kind of attitude. Because so many Christians will spend their whole lives fighting, striving, and begging for what they ultimately cannot keep. They will go to church, they will put money in the plate, but their hearts are set on living for the next paycheck, the next relationship, the next job opportunity. Their hearts are far from God. And know this, that I myself have fallen into that same kind of attitude and have fallen into deep places of darkness and despair over things that, at the end of the day, don't have any eternal significance. So what if I didn't do great in that class? So what if I didn't get that job? So what if that relationship didn't work out? None of that matters in the grand scheme of eternity. It's not worth despairing over. It's not worth 
fantasizing over death over. It's not worth any of that. God has given us so much more. There's so much more to life than just what we can hold onto with our bare hands. And to those of you who have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to challenge you to think upon that the world promises hope and a future, but it cannot deliver on that. It, it really cannot. Everything that you can invest in in this life has a, a potential to fail and ultimately will either let you down or just flat out collapse. Jesus is the only thing that will never forsake us. He will never betray us. He will never forget about us. He is, he is not negligent. He is not abusive. He is the perfect, loving father. And he can be your loving father if you accept him for yourself. So I want to challenge us, church. Let us not live for anything in this world just live by faith in Christ alone. I'm going to go ahead and pray to close out the message. And as we move into the times of looking at these baptisms that are about to take place, I want us to think about what does it mean to truly live by faith? And I think baptism is a great example of someone taking the faith that they have and putting it into action. And let us contemplate how each and every one of us can do that in our own lives. Father, thank you for this time that you've allowed us to gather together to worship you, to be able to honor you, God. Thank you for all the blessings that you pour out on us. God, let us not despair over the things of this world that are ultimately temporary and have no real meaning beyond this life. God, let us focus on that which is eternal. God, for those of us who, who know you personally, May we be in a right relationship with you and seek to live out the faith that you have given us. And for those of us who have never accepted you as Lord, I ask that you would turn our hearts towards you, that you would soften our hearts towards the gospel and help us to recognize the futility of striving after things that we cannot keep and instead seek that which lasts forever. Ask all of this in the mighty, perfect name of Jesus. Amen.